0: This is the CIIS Public Programs podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramotosholloni land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website ciis.edu and connect with us on social media at CIS Pub Programs.
1: Hi Prisha. it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for being with us today. How are My you? Course. Good, good. I'm glad to be here and I'm excited to be in conversation with you. Me as well. Um I really enjoyed reading your book. It really resonated with me. Um, there was so much that that landed and, and mirrored my lived experience, and I guess I wanted to thank you for um, writing, writing so many Black women's truths down. I thought I would start by asking, since the book is about grief, if you could Define for us how what grief looks like to you, especially since so many Black women's rage and anger is, is uh, so much. So many Black women's grief is misunderstood as rage and anger.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for sharing your experience and you know your reaction to the book, um, because writing is a solitary process, <laughs> and like thinking and feeling uh, you know um, it's a gift to hear how someone else, especially another black woman received the work. So um, thank you for that. I feel like being able to to write the book and put it out into the world um, has allowed me to feel in community uh, with other black women who I otherwise wouldn't have that direct or intimate relationship with. Um, For me, the way I define grief, well, let me start by talking about the way that, you know, grief is typically defined. Um, Usually when we talk about grief, uh, we we think of of past and concrete loss. Um, And when we're talking about Black women, Black people, Black LGBTQ folks, grief in particular, there's a lot of past and current loss that one can look to and think of as grief. Um, And the way that, I explore grief, um, and the book is much larger than a um, past and current context. Um, I talk about the ways in which grief is also um, prevalent in the way that we think about the future uh, through our relationship to fear of loss, because we are all born into the world um, with a finite, finite amount of time. We all know um, that we have a relationship to mortality um, and impermanence. So even if we're in a situation where we think, hey, you know, my life's been pretty great. Um, my family was great. My friends are great. I have a great job. You know, there's still that fear of loss that tends to plague people. Um, and it often shows up uh, in, in the form of anxiety. It could be anxiety about losing the great job you have. It could be anxiety about losing the respect of your, your co-workers. It could be um, anxiety, especially for women, of walking down the street. Um, by yourself, even if you've walked down the street a thousand times and gotten to wherever it is, wherever it is you wanna wanna go, and you've gotten there safely. Uh, safely, there's still that awareness of what you have to lose, and that awareness um, is also associated with grief, and that's the type of grief that I really wanted uh, to break open and explore. And in terms of Black women, and you um, alluded to our, our rage and our anger, um, rage and, and anger are forms of grief and they are legitimate forms of grief, but because black women are so dehumanized within our culture, our legitimate anger um, and legitimate rage when we experience it is used to further dehumanize us and further ostracize us. Uh, When, you know, if I don't believe that grief necessarily has stages, I do believe that grief has expressions Um, and it's well-documented that rage and anger are a part of grief, Uh, but that's not something that, you know, readily comes to mind when you think of the angry Black woman, um, because, you know, to to put us in relationship to grief would further humanize us, and the point is to make us seem
1: um, unsympathetic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, That makes so much sense, and I'm just thinking about what you mentioned about the five stages of grief and that it's not so much about stages, but expressions of grief. I really like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have not heard that before. I really like that. Um, There's so much imagery in the book. um, And I wanna just read a sentence that I saw in the preface that really spoke to me and Mm -hmm. ask you a question about it. Uh, So you noted tragedies kept alive by silence, haunting generations, memories recorded in bodies, restless and weary all waiting to be spoken. When I heard these ghosts knocking in the closets of my unconscious, I was afraid to answer for fear the quest- of what the questions may bring. I'm curious what f- made you finally open the door?
2: Yeah. Um, choosing my own survival and my own humanity um, as Black people collectively, and from my own experience as a LGBTQ Black woman, um, so much has been taken from us. And so so much is constantly under threat of being taken. We've lost so much non-consensually that we are so driven and afraid of what else we have to lose because we aren't left with much besides what we protect. Mm -hmm. Um, And those defense mechanisms of, you know, um, guarding ourselves from experiencing grief and pain by being defensive and not being um, vulnerable closes us further off from our humanity because being human as a black person in the united states pretty much um, at, pretty much puts you at risk you know like our humanity and our vulnerability um, are the very things that have been perverted and taken advantage of and that has to be uh, in my opinion one of the Biggest tragedies um, of what we've endured. Um, so for me, the journey um, and the decision to to open the, that door and to listen was to choose myself, choose my humanity um, in a culture and society that was constant, that's constantly trying to deny that. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So again, the the book is full of imagery and I kind of chuckled to myself when you were discussing learning how to swim. I also, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to, I don't know how to swim. And so (laughs) there's a, there's a point where you, in this really beautiful and eloquent way, you talk about, you're talking about power and helplessness and learning how to harness power when you're speaking about a friend of yours Mm and that she was able to float because she could harness, she learned how to harness the power of the waves could you speak a little bit about helplessness and powerlessness and, and harnessing power?
2: For sure. Um, I want to start by saying you can never be better than that which you imitate. And when we are trying to to build paths of healing and possibilities for um, a new future in a culture that has, um, you know, meaned and, and denigrated so many people, we can't look to that, same culture as an example for how we understand power and how we understand grief and how we understand relationships. So for me, um, I mentioned in the book that I I took le- swing lessons like four or five times, right? I, I can finally float now, but let me tell you, that was hard earned, <laughs> like, it was, and, you know, due to COVID, I haven't been able to continue, which has really been a loss. But I remember just being in tears and over the moon when my body was finally able to float. Um, but in in the story that I share in the book, I was in Cuba um, with a couple of my girlfriends and we we're, you know, playing in the ocean, obviously where I could stand up. And, you know, this friend was, you know, she was trying to to show me how to, to float. And every time I've learned, Attempted to learn how to swim. Um, There are so many lessons that I learned about myself. Like one lesson, um, I think this is like my second or third time, um, was noticing how I sink much more quickly, and I have trouble treading water if you know I get into the water and I'm angry because of the way that I'm holding my body and the way that I'm tensing. So there is a lot of mindfulness that went into the practice and and went into each attempt um, when I was taking lessons. Um, But with this friend, I remember she she lean back into the water and she was showing me like, Hey, like, you know, you can jump with the waves. You don't try to, to fight and go against them. And that really stuck with me for, for months. Um, and I, I think in that same passage, I talk about, you know, meeting Miss McDaniel, I think is a name I gave to her. Um, and I think, you know, the whole swimming thing um, really, broke open my relationship to power when I met her and had that interaction. But ultimately we have been taught, um, we have been fooled into thinking that power is something that we can have and that we can own and that we manipulate instead of understanding that power is something that has us. And it is our job as human beings to be a vessel for power and to ensure that when power Um, operates through us or flows through us. And and, and when we, you know, come into relationship um, with other sources that have power, that we are as clean of a vessel as we can be um, so that it doesn't get misused. And by that, I mean, um, we are constantly aware and attending to um, our own relationship to grief, our own relationship to trauma and anger and whatever it might be, such that when we are coming when we are coming in, into contact with our relationship to power and we're encountering other sources of power, whether it be the ocean or power um, that's flowing through other people, we don't attempt to misuse that. Um, so really, when I was learning to swim and the way I started think about power, instead of like something that A, I own and I have and B, um, looking at other sources like the ocean and those waves as, you know, an entity with power, instead of looking at that is something I needed to conquer and overcome. I looked at it as something that I needed to lean into and give into um, as, you know, um, something I could influence, like I can influence or have an impact on the waves by treading the water and, and moving my hands. But ultimately, you know, when I enter into the water, when I establish a relationship with the ocean or another person, I come into it with the understanding that I can't control it. Which means that I can't control the outcomes. You know, there are so many powerful swimmers, or there have been powerful swimmers um, who still get overcome by the waves in the ocean. Um, and accepting and giving myself over to that process um has helped me understand the difference between being, you know, powerless and helpless. Like I'm powerless because I I do not own power. Power is not mine to have. I am not powerful. I can't take or give power because power is not of me or from me to take or give, but I am not helpless and that I still have agency and how I choose to be in relationship to power and how I choose to allow power to, to flow through me by doing my own work. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, this actually makes me think about another question, um, that I had, I had had around outcomes, you just mentioned outcomes. And I was just thinking about how there's so much hyper-focus on outcome. And I think it (laughs) it, it keeps us stuck. And I I guess I just was curious if you had thoughts about that. Um, Just like the stuckness or like the the hyper-focus on on outcome which we have no, we don't have any control over it. Yeah, I mean,
2: and that's the culture we live in. Uh, And those are the, I'm I'm Buddhist. So those are the delusions that we have been that we, we bought into. Um, but ultimately, also it, it's unfortunate that so many people um, move through the world and that superficial relationship to power, you know, being able to say, I did the thing that I said I was going to do, or being able to control a situation or being able to bring about a certain outcome is the only relationship to power. They come to understand When power is so much deeper and more, more, profound um, than that. But um, yeah, the, the emphasis on outcomes and, and being able to control things is something that we, we buy into all the time. And I want to draw, a, a you know, establish a difference between controlling something and having influence. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we could control, truly control outcomes, then impermanence would be something that we would never have to fear or experience. Mm-hmm. You know, if we could if we actually had as much power and control as we would like to imagine, um, you know, uh, due to the, the delusions and the false confidences that we're given in our day-to-day life, you know, we wouldn't have to fear losing the people we love. You wouldn't have to fear, you know, um, the, the outcome of, um, of whether or not we, we have our job or the consequences of certain behavior. Um, there would just be much less fear of loss because we could control it. You know, we wouldn't die. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we can influence circumstances like I can influence um, whether or not I lose my job by choosing to show up <laughs> or maybe not telling my boss how I feel about him today. Right? <laughs> or um, I can influence uh, my health by choosing to, I guess, eat this kale right now instead of that Wendy's burger. Uh, for the, the sixth day in a row <laughs> with a milkshake, right? Like they are like things that you can do to influence certain outcomes, but you know, at the end of the day, none of us have full control or ultimate say um over what does and does not happen. And I think that coming into coming to terms with that reality is so terrifying um, for most people. Mm-hmm. And it's just safer or feels safer on the surface to to focus on um the power that only
1: results in feeling like you can control your outcomes, so. mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is delusional, as I think you said, or at least I, I read. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, since we're talking about power, I'll, I'll stay on this line. Um, so I, I'm thinking about the ways in which people use power to oppress um, others. Um, and I'm just curious when thinking about power and privilege, do you think there's motivation, or what do you think the motivation would be to give up unearned privileges, which you 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 speak to a reference in the book?
2: Yeah. um the motivation would be getting in touch with one's own humanity and also letting go of fear. You know, i I it's, it's kind of, is it circ- cyclical, circular? I'm not sure what I'm looking for. It, it's kind of circular in that a lot of oppressive actions and systems come from fear. You know, I uh, believe I mentioned earlier in the book that uh, I believe that systemic oppression of all types, even though I focus on uh, systemic racism and and, and sex or misogynoir, misogynoir in particular, um, come from the, the realization uh, from, you know the oppressor or the person who is misusing power the most, that fear of loss and impermanence are a thing. So time is a finite resource. Money, finite resource, which you know in our culture and the way it sets up, gives you time. Um, you know, the time we spend with people we love, finite resource, like everything is finite. And in order to buy or to give ourselves uh, more opportunities to experience that joy, to whether it's, you know, in a hot with a hobby, or uh, with our children, um, and, and wife, in my case, um, or relaxing. Um, whatever it is that we want to experience more of, I, I think that humans in general, but in the context of systemic racism and white supremacy, um, the idea is that somebody else needs to pay for my ability to have more access to time like somebody else needs to not be able to rest not be able to have time um, with their family, not be able to, to have money so that I can have these things so that um, to not be able to have as many opportunities for jobs, you know, um, because if Brisha comes across the desk uh, with a spectacular resume and it's compared to Drew, I don't know, <laughs> you know, um, you know, the system is set up uh, such that Drew has more opportunities than Brisha is given from the get-go by virtue of who we are and who the world imagines us to be so that Jew then has more money, then has um, more time to relax, then has you know, more of an ability to build the life that he wants to build so that he can make the most of his time. And that is coming at a direct cost to me. And I think the, the misuse of power comes from that fear. you know, And then it perpetuates that fear because then you have a lot more that you're afforded and a lot more to protect. Um, and you can't, you can't control the fact that the very people that you want to oppress, the only way that you can oppress them is by putting them keeping them in proximity to you. And when somebody or something has proximity to you, <laughs> then they have the ability to harm you, right? They have the ability to take away the very things that you have taken. So then, there is that added fear of having, it experienced. You know um, what it's like to have those those extra resources that have been stolen um, from from lives that did not consent to give those things up. Um, and then there's you know, more. There's like a, a, a tightening on on that power that didn't belong uh, to to an oppressor to begin with. Um, and I believe leaning into the basic fear, that the basic fear of impermanence and grief and fear of loss allows all of us to make the most of our time and to experience life fully and and equitably. Just, Just acknowledging that, yeah, hey, you know, and permanence is real. Grief is real. Fear of loss is real. This is um, the amount of time that I'm, I'm given. And I understand that I actually can't control outcomes. Um, but with the time that I'm given, at least I have greater access to the humanity that's been gifted to me because I'm not living under all of this fear that I have created by constantly taking um, taking from and oppressing the people around me.
1: Does that make sense? It does make sense. Okay. Yeah, thank you. This makes me think about a couple of different points in the book. It makes me think about grief, but it also makes me think about, there's a passage um, where you speak about white people having a 500 year advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and you share, you said something like, Black folks can't stop, like we can't slow down because then we won't be able to pass the, the baton on to the next generation. There, like there's no time, like time is like of the essence and running out. Um and so my mind was going there when you were when you were talking about time. But then I was also thinking about how um there's a part where you you reference um I was thinking about anticipatory grief and there's a point where you say, I'll, I'll read it. Um, the first death black parents talk to their children about is their their children's own. Parents of marginalized children live intimately with the reality of embodied time. Time is not a given. And of course, no black person or no black parent is um, wanting their child to die and is, is not hoping for that. Like the hope is that their ch- they won't have to bury their child. But unfortunately this yeah. is really common in our community our communities. Um, can you share a little bit about that or speak to that?
2: Yeah. Um, I mentioned how you know, the book talks about um, fear of loss and fear of impermanence being a primary driver for creating systems of oppression, uh, sexism, racism, homophobia, all of them. Um, and I think this is a prime example uh, if we're going to talk about time. You know, and fear of loss of time. So, so that white people can have more comfort and more time and more access, we pay the cost down to our children. But like they're, they don't worry about their lives to the same degree. Like if this is not an equal. We're not walking down the street. We're not going in job interviews. We're not walking through the store with the same level of hypervigilance in our bodies, even in meditation retreats. Like when I'm the only black person just sitting quietly minding my peaceful ass business. Can I curse in this? by the way? I think um, so. Okay, all right. Maybe I'll turn it <laughs> just in <laughs> case. Uh, minding my business. Uh, oh, I can, all right. So, you know, even when I'm minding my own damn business, being in my body is a, like a constant reminder or awareness in the ways in which I can die. Like not just the physical death, or not just police violence, which comes to mind immediately when you're talking about black person and death. But you know, the death of self, and and the way that I know myself and who I imagine myself to be as someone who is capable, who is um, intelligent and articulate, and then coming into contact with. A, a white person who immediately demeans my intelligence because of who I am so that like there's that that death of self in that moment that constant renegotiation that constant work to bring myself back to life to be who I know myself to be um, but when it comes to black children this is something like they are experiencing those types of deaths from an early age you know um, a, the, the, the type of death that their parent is talking to them about, that concrete physical death of like, hey, don't uh, be careful how you point that toy gun when you're in a park because a grown, grown-ass white guy might think that you are a menace or be careful walking through um, the store with your, your hands in the pot, your pockets because, you know, some white woman might be afraid and think that you are a terrorist. Um, and then there are the the moments of death that Black children experience um, being in the classroom. You know, um, hey, yeah, you, know, you can be smart, but not too smart. You're smart for a Black kid. I.e., the implication is Black kids aren't supposed to be smart, even though the child, like the child, didn't come into the world with this awareness. The child is intelligent and is leaning into their intelligent, but they're they're experiencing that death of self. Um, when when in a classroom talking to teachers and classmates who can't see them as an actual human being and then starts projecting things onto them, um, that is a death to their spirit. So, so these are those conversations Black parents have as well, um, but I really wanted to highlight the other ways in which Black parents have to talk to their children um, in a way that is Grounded in death with a small d is what I'm going <laughs> to call it. Um, because these these children don't get to just come into the world and live into themselves. They come into a world that is telling them who they are and who they are not. Um, more often, who they are not. Okay. And, it, and it's a constant stripping of their humanity. And there, there is never-ending death in that.
1: Yeah: It's really heartbreaking. Um, this is reminding me of something my wife was sharing with me earlier today about a friend of hers who has a friend with a 13 year- old black, black male child who was saying, if he saves up his money for the next five years, he can have he'll be able to afford a bulletproof vest by the time he's 18." and just like how heartbreaking that is that that's where his mind, that's what he's planning for, because he already knows at 13. Um, Yeah. As you were speaking, I was just thinking about our humanity as black people and and in particular black women um, and thinking about the ways in which we constantly have our boundaries crossed Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. And there's this passage um, where you speak about your experience of officiating a wedding and these two drag queens show up and are sort of quote unquote in blackface just in how they're acting or interacting. Um, and you, you talk about how as black women, we can't even embody our full selves yet here. You have these, I, I guess, two white males, mm-hmm. um, two white male drag queens um, <laughs> enacting you know what they think blackness is or black femaleness is. Um, would you mind speaking to that? a okay.
2: bit Yeah, um, it's just a, a, an additional layer of, of tragedy and perversion in this entire system. Like not only are black people and black women in particular, um, since that's who we're speaking about, um, not only are we denied the right to exist as we are, like as we are born to be in flesh, Actual human beings. Not only are we denied that right, and constantly having our light snuffed out, whether it's the black hairstyles that are, uh, or black uh, black girl hairstyles that are um, banned in schools, um, or you know whether it's being punished or disciplined at an exceedingly high rate compared to you know our um, white female counterparts, but People who aren't us get to exist in like a a shell, a shell of what we represent, and they they get to to don that when they when they're ready and celebrate what we are constantly told that we should feel ashamed of mm-hmm. and get to celebrate the very things that make us feel um, that we're told make us unworthy like our sexuality you know um these things get to be a source of, of pride and celebration by the very people who ultimately have disdain for the life that produces it mm-hmm. and we see that so much in our culture. I mean, that's essentially what cultural appropriation is, you know, and and cultural appropriation. You know, I'm I'm queer, Uh, I I have a wife, and as a member of the LGBTQ community, consistently observing the trends in the LGBT community and what gets uh, labeled as as strong and and admirable is just a a ripoff and a uh, poor caricature of Black womanhood. Um, And in these same communities, like, anti-Blackness is as prevalent <laughs> as ever, pervasive as ever. Um, and, you know, same just in, in the world at large. Uh, Miley Cyrus gets, you know, she gets kudos or she gets to build a career off of um twerking or a dance that has been a part of African-American culture, just Black culture just for God knows how long. I don't know. Twerking has been around since I was... I've, I've always known what twerking was, right? Um, but this white girl gets to take it and make it into a thing and then put put on this caricature of Black womanhood, build an entire career off of it, um, be praised for, you know, what she has ripped and stolen from my culture. Meanwhile, uh, Black women are denigrated. It's uh, <laughs> told that, you know, we are hypersexual and yada, yada, yada. Um, for, the same things um, and told that we are less worthy for the same things that are actually from our culture.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's enraging to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also thinking, so thank you for that. Um, there's a part where you talk about grief being used to avoid accountability specific like you were specifically speaking about within the black community itself
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um in social social justice spaces and i was wondering if you could share more about what you mean by avoiding accountability
2: for sure um so i talk about the in the book, I couldn't write about everything though <laughs> I wanted to. Uh, so it had to be very targeted. And what I focused on specifically um, was what I felt was most pressing um, in our culture. Um, and, and for me, as an LGBTQ Black woman and the, the various types of systemic trauma that I experienced, and that was uh, the consequence of um, white supremacy, white patriarchy, whatever you want to call it, um, and how the fear of impermanence experienced by people who are wielding um white privilege male privilege straight privilege whatever it might be how their relationship to grief actually um actually means that me and people like me experience significantly more suffering and grief because they won't deal with their shit uh, but I also wanted to elucidate that this isn't particular just to people who we see who have social power in this moment. This is a human thing to do. And yeah, like we can point to the white patriarchy and clearly um, there are a shit ton of issues there. And at the same time, we see the the remnants of that same pattern, that same human pattern to avoid grief and fear of loss, even if one has experienced tremendous amounts of grief and fear of loss to one, no fault of one's own. So, in addition to that inherent fear of loss that we're born with, having um, additional trauma inflicted onto you because of who you are, um, that can still be used to cause harm to people within the community. Um, and an example of this is, um, you know, Black assist Black men. Who cling to their patriarchal privilege, or feel that because they've experienced racial trauma, there's no way they can be held accountable, or you know, um, called or called in, called out—whatever you want to call it—for um, the damage that they inflict upon Black women as a result of their patriarchal privilege. Um, and in social justice circles, or you know, lgbt communities, um, it's like uh, other examples would be, you know. or I think that the example I used in the book was um, being in a Facebook group and watching someone say something hurtful to someone who was struggling with mental illness. And instead of the person who said something hurtful, let's call them person A, simply apologizing to person B, you know, the the trauma and grief that person A had experienced as an LGBTQ person was basically used to deflect responsibility for the fucked up thing that they said. Mm -hmm. When... Just say, just say, I'm sorry and own it. Like <laughs> you know, just because you have X, Y, Z uh, social identity and you experience harm in X, Y, Z ways, does that mean that you then have a pardon or a pass for the harm that you also perpetuate uh, against someone else? You know, it, it it means that there is perhaps greater empathy. It means that there can perhaps, you know, if we can find ways, provide greater support. But ultimately, the harm. Originator, it was caused by person A, and therefore it was on person A <laughs> to own that. Uh, and that is not what happened in that situation. Um, so, so that's an example of what I was talking about.
1: Thank you. It just seems like it's really hard for people to take account of take accountability at times. Um, yeah, it is. Whether it's pride or shame or yeah, who knows? Um. There's a couple of other passages that I'm thinking about. And as you were just speaking about um, Black women and Black men, I wanted to read a passage that really struck me. I'm going to get your thoughts on it. Uh, So you say, dominance is often shaped by what it isn't. So in a society in which dominance is synonymous with whiteness and masculinity, Black female bodies are often used as the ruler against which everyone else measures their, their superiority. Mm-hmm. And with which black women are with, with which black women track their failure to measure up. Um, can you share more about that? Yeah.
2: Oh, and also, can we come back to to after I answer this question? You you made a statement that actually got my mind thinking about what it is that keeps people from um, just taking accountability, and I, I want to circle back to that because I had a thought. Um, <laughs> but. Um, the quote was um about black women being the the measuring stick. Right, exactly. Okay. Um so I did I mentioned that identities are formed by who they are and what they what they are. Um so presumably if I am rich in money, then I'm not poor. If I am not intelligent, or if I, you know, I, I do not like this term. I can't, um, I want to say stupid because that is what comes to mind. And that's something that's thrown around. Um, but that I wish I could off the top of my head, think of a better term. And that would mean that I am not, um, I guess, intelligent by whatever standards are being set. Right. Mm -hmm. So How I see myself is based on what I'm told and what I believe I am and what I'm not. Mm -hmm. And if you look at social hierarchies in in the the U.S. and how they're defined, like white womanhood is defined in its relationship to Black womanhood. Uh, And part of that um, Mm -hmm. comes with the protections that white women have by virtue of being white that Black women do not have by virtue of being Black. Black manhood or black masculine, no, I'm gonna go with manhood because there's a difference between manhood and masculinity, and I get more in depth uh on that in the book. Uh, that's a separate topic, um, is also defined um by black womanhood. You know, you are black, but you are not a woman, and there are certain things that you expect by virtue of being a man. There are certain privileges that you should at the very least get, you know, even though you're black, because you're a man, there are privileges that white women um, should get even though they're a woman. So if you're like looking at the history of identity construction in the U.S. Um, from when Black people are are brought over as, as slaves, and then you look at how relationships between white men um, and and Native women and Black women and white women and white and Black men had to change by virtue of bringing in you know these new people um, within the the master slave relationship. Um, Black women are the standard in which other people build their identity, you know, in terms of what they can expect, what privileges they can expect in relationship to Black women um, and what privileges they don't expect because of whatever is a given uh, by whatever system of oppression um, is relevant to them. And that could be, you know, patriarchy for for white women or, or racism for Black men, whatever, whatever the system might be. Uh, And ultimately, it supports white patriarchy, (laughs) you know, people, you know, people want to dismantle the whole system in theory. And so that theory requires actual action. That means that folks are losing something in the moment. And it's that loss, like that grip on the little bit of power um, that one has that ultimately allows the system to stay in place because people are afraid uh, of losing mm-hmm. the the little bit that they have because ultimately privileges um systemic oppression is is built to ensure that certain privileges give you access to to more time so that the reality of impermanence is not a direct threat to you. Mm-hmm.
1: Every time you mention impermanence, I keep thinking the only constant is change. And I have to tell myself that all the time because it's hard. You know, like everything is impermanent. Nothing stays the same. But you wanted to circle back to the what I was mentioning about accountability. You had a thought about that?
2: Yeah. Um It's interesting when you were talking about, and this is, I I haven't like sat with this and and toyed with it um, a lot, so this is just off the cuff, (laughs) so work with me, but um, you're talking about shame and and what it is that that prevents people from really leaning into accountability, and I believe that it extends from grief as well, because One of the things I mentioned in the book is that, you know, if you aren't aware of how grief is functioning in your life, if you aren't aware of your relationship to fear of impermanence and fear of loss, then grief drives you. And it's driving you because you don't know that it's in the backseat, right? And I believe that cultures have found ways to manipulate that to some degree. I mean, capitalism manipulates our relationship to grief all the time, whether or not, you know, it's an ad that we're watching that's telling us, that's implicitly telling us that there's something that we lack. Um, It could be like a beauty commercial or something. Uh, So then we feel compelled to buy something, Um, like buy this makeup or this push-up bra or whatever it is that's supposed to make us feel more beautiful because having access to that then gives us access to relationships um, and other types of cultural capital, which leads to other types of capital and uh, resources. Um, So we're constantly having our grief manipulated in capitalism. In general, you know, working at a job you don't like and that's stressful and that is toxic, as fuck. but you need your health insurance because without health insurance, your health isn't taken care of. And what, <laughs> what is closer to, you know, what other reminder is there of the reality of impermanence and, and death and not being able to, to see a doctor when you need one. Um, but in the same way, uh, Fear of loss um, and and being ostracized and being disconnected from from people has been something that's been used to um, control or, like, guide society in general. Like, you don't behave in certain ways because you know that, or we, all of us know that, you know, certain types of behaviors mean that um, are unacceptable. And that means that we lose access to relationships and community. You know, we, people know, or I just ask. I'm going to use myself as an example, um, if, if cursing was okay, right? Because I am aware that there are contexts in which cursing is not okay. Mm-hmm. And if I curse in those contexts and I lose access to that space, those relationships, and whatever else that might mean. Um, so I think, like, in the the case of the social justice example, specifically, um, to, for person A to have been, had their ableism called into question, you know, the association with ableism, you alluded to shame, um, it, it is it's shameful. Um, and also, you're not supposed to be, to be ableist, right? Like, we have you're not supposed to do certain things that make you a bad person, um, and if you do things that make you a bad person, then you risk losing the communities and, and the people you want to be in connection with. And I think that that can be particular, uh, particularly um, poignant for for communities that have been marginalized, where we don't have access to the same people. Like we have a smaller <laughs> Pool of, uh, pool of people to 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 pull from to begin with um so then that fear can be amplified but but that that fear of you know loss of community and austria um ostracization is something that humans experience across the board so when you know racist ass white guy hears you know he's racist oh i got an example papa john <laughs> this guy i was watching on youtube um Homeboy legit said I am not racist. Had been caught using the N word and then said that in the same I am not racist sentence said that he'd been working for 20 months to remove the N word from his from his dialogue. Wow. Now sir <laughs> that sounds mighty racist to me. Right. Like your actions sound like the epitome of racism. However, you know that being called racist or being associated with racist uh, racism means that you lose access to certain things, to certain people, certain relationships you don't have. You know, even if your actions have this say the, the actual the impact of racism, you calling people the N word, bro. So, so yeah, I think it's that fear of loss and that you know unattended grief that makes people respond viscerally because they immediately think, oh shit. What can I lose, or what's at stake if I am this person, and then other people don't want to have the same type of relationship
1: with me? That makes so much sense. Yeah, fear of loss. I'm thinking about sort of connections, fear of loss, like uh, of tangible things too, like money.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: losing losing one's job, capital, income. Um, there's like a whole spectrum. But I mean, that just makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. Um, I'm just having different things or images pop into my head from the book. And I was thinking about towards the end of the book, you talk about liberation. And when I think about liberation, I really think about showing up as, as my full self. Mm-hmm. and as a black human being that's oftentimes quite difficult for me to bring my full self like whether it's you know to this interview to work to to, to to different settings and there's a there's a point in the book where you're where there's a young man whose father has recently passed away and he's in his grief and the hospital calls either security or p- police on him
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and you come back, I believe you had stepped away to tend to another family, um, and I just found myself, oh, and also his aunt admonishes him for how he's dressed, mm-hmm. and I just found myself enraged and in tears because he you know every his humanity was really stripped away in that moment, and all people saw was like this t- terrorist or this i don't I don't know what like this this monster, if you will, as opposed to this young man who's grieving. Um, do you have thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, um, as Black people, as women, um, we are constantly made responsible for shit that has nothing to do with us. And that's, you know, and it starts with our with relationship to grief and impermanence. Like the whole system of oppression pushes off the grief or the, the fear of loss experienced by our oppressor onto us. Such so that we become responsible for And in that situation, in the example that you gave, that young man became responsible for this white woman's, you know, own grief and, and, and own anxiety and discomfort such that he couldn't grieve the loss. I believe it was of his grandfather. I don't recall um, the story fully. Um, I do recall also feeling a loss of time because I'm with another family and I can't support that family who had been there. For an hour, that woman who waited for an hour before I could even get there <laughs> because of what was going on with the white nurse and, and the young Black man. And then I had to leave her prematurely only after 20 minutes of seeing her. So even she, you know, as a downstream effect is losing time and suffering because of this white woman's relationship or avoidance of her own anxiety and grief. And I think systemic. I know systemic oppression does this in a variety of ways. So in this example, this young Black man was made responsible for shit that wasn't his responsibility. Somebody was uncomfortable with the fact that his pants were hanging hanging off the way that they were. That ain't got nothing to do with him. Like Those those, his pants in the same way that a woman walking down the street in shorts, however short they are, revealing however much she wants to reveal and got like that other people's discomfort about how she dresses and her body. Is not her responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like their anger, their lust, their desire, um, their their violence, that is not on her, but we live in a culture that is constantly going to push other people, displace other people's grief and and, and, and their anger and their shit onto people who have been marginalized within um the system. And that is what he experienced. And I and as Black people, we have been taught. That our key to salvation, which we associate with freedom, comes from adopting those standards and those rules. Hmm. But again, we can never be better than that, which we um, imitate and and adopting those rules can keep us alive from moment to moment, maybe, (laughs) maybe, Hmm. Uh, because I mean, there are plenty of examples where it, it, it don't make no difference, Sandra Glenn, for example. Mind her own damn business, right? Um, So, or um, Elijah, like it's maybe, you know, we we hope that it can buy us more time, but in constantly being invested in our salvation moment to moment and taking on the anxieties and fears of other people, um, which, you know, in in a lot of cases we have to for our survival or for hopes of survival, Mm -hmm. we are not able to focus on what it actually takes to be liberated. Because of the cost, because you know, the people were given power that does not belong to them in our system um, as a result of their fear of loss, have the ability to wreak irreparable havoc on our lives to cause even greater loss than the losses that we experience.
1: Mm-hmm. That was really powerful. Thank you for that. Um, And thinking about liberation, I'm also thinking about something that you reference sort of throughout the book or speak to you talk about mindfulness and meditation and um, your meditation practice. And I guess I'm curious, has that led to you said that you you've said in the book also that liberation is not like a destination. It's a it's a process. Mm-hmm. So I was going to say, has that led to your own liberation? But it's not a, there's not a destination. So has it helped you in your, <laughs> your process, in your liberation process?
2: I, I mean, I guess I, I'm here. <laughs> um, I. I Don't know. I, I believe so. Um, and, and I say I don't know because I'm not. Um, I think without context and in the book, the way that the listener might be imagining or defining liberation might be different than how I'm describing it. Um, but if we're talking about the liberation that just feels good and feels powerful all the time, no. Like, I don't believe that that's a real thing. And it's not something that I aspire towards. If we're talking about the type of liberation that comes from um, showing up authentically uh, and, and vulnerably and um, living into my my own humanity, um, moment to moment and choosing myself, like choosing myself and my humanity um, and the humanity of my people and the communities I've served, then yes, that I I do believe that that's the type of liberation I'm experiencing. And it is a process.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot of the work that I do is about helping people um, Find their own personal freedom, and I really just like the sort of the the, the latter definition that you gave, because um, I think for a lot of Black folks we're not free, you know, we're not liberated for all the reasons that you've you've illustrated in the in this conversation today. Um, I guess something else I'm curious about um, as I'm just looking, noticing time is. Are there things that you really want your reader to take away from the book? Or is there anything that you kind of want folks to walk away with or, or Black women or the Black community in particular to walk away with in reading the book?
2: Um, not, that I can, <laughs> not that I can think of. I, find, I So I find the question funny. Uh, can I share something with you? Please. Okay, cool. <laughs> so funny thing. When I wrote this book, I know it's called Grieving While Black, but I did not know who would read it. So backtrack. Um, I had started uh, a, a project or a business a few years ago um, that you know produced um, eBooks and kits and meditations specifically for Black women um, to address our anger uh, and subsequent grief from experiencing misogynoir. Mm-hmm. And girl, I wrote everything myself. Use nothing but pictures of Black women. Hire Black marketers um, have a black female friends looking at it and, you know, just giving me honest feedback. And the only people who were drawn to this were white women. And I really fucked away. And I remember being in this group of black, you know, women who were starting their businesses and, and other black women gave me the feedback of your audience is whoever shows up. So this who you thought your audience was. <laughs> Apparently there's not your audience. So go with it. Right. So when I was writing Grieving While Black, I honestly started the project about four years ago, but I didn't realize I was starting the project. Um, and then I signed the, the contract for the book at the end of 2019 and finished it in like February, 2020. Um, but initially, you know, for me, typically when people are thinking about grief and, and and Blackness or in relationship to racism, they are specifically thinking about the grief that Black people, are feeling as a result of systemic racism. And of course, that comes out very strongly in my book because I am a Black woman experiencing the consequences of these various systems. Um, at the same time, when I was writing the book, I wanted to point the finger back at the people who were responsible for perpetuating that grief because of their own relationship to fear of loss. Um, so when I was writing it, you know, my interest was Telling or showing those people how they can be more present for, you know, their experience to get their shit together. So we are experiencing the, down, the downstream effects of their relationship to their own grief and fear of loss. And it's all interconnected or it's all tied together. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to share that, like, that was my attention and like, that was my audience when uh, writing the book, <laughs> But, like, you know, I take on these projects and I will have a goal in mind and the way that it is um, interpreted and who picks it up, like, it's it's out of my hands. Like, once it's in a store or, you know, once it's, like, available um, to the public in general, I don't have any more um, say in what becomes of it, which is both terrifying and exciting. Um, so yeah, like your, your question made me think about that that whole experience of not knowing who was going to read this or who would actually you know find it um, most helpful and what people would take from it based on their social location and experience.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And as you were describing this product, I was thinking, do you still offer this? Because I would lo- I would personally love love to get a copy. So I think that's so interesting that white women were particularly drawn to it. I was—I mean, I went with it. I was—I
2: was like, I don't know how this came to be, <laughs>
1: but like, I don't—I—I
2: I mean, I have meditations, to trap beats, everything, but I don't—I <laughs> have no idea. But whatever, you know, it was what it was. Uh, unfortunately, I discontinued it due to COVID because I wasn't able to to go to fairs, um, to sell it, and you know, there were stopping in a local LA store, but then that store closed down, so yeah, COVID has kind of impacted by ability to continue that project. Thank you for asking.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, Sort of a half, half-formed question I have as I was, again, as I'm just sitting and listening to you is, again, the book really resonated with me and I had to stop just to cry oftentimes throughout the book and just like breathe deeply. There was just so much that hit so deeply. And at the end or towards the end, you talk about love. And I remember writing in the margins. margins do, is Brisha saying we need to redefine love, but I can't remember like the exact passage, Um, which you were speaking about love. And I just was thinking, you know, what is is love? How are we defining love? And as black people do, we need to redefine love to, again, to sort of be on this process Mm -hmm. towards liberation. I don't know if that's resonant for you, but
2: oh yeah. Uh thank you for that question. I think that's something really powerful to end on. We absolutely need to redefine love. Um yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's a ongoing process. You know, a lot of folks in the community wouldn't recognize my relationship you know, with my wife as a a representation of of love. But ultimately, um, or even like the way we talk about Black love um, and what that means, you know, ultimately, I believe that anything that adds to the fullness, um, the the wholeness and the healing of a Black person is Black love, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: right? Um, Assuming it's not causing harm (laughs) to someone else, you know. uh, But, you know, with consenting adult relationships, um, yeah, I mean, that that's how I would, you know, find, define Black romantic love. But like love is just so, we sell love short in the same way that we often sell God short and making God out to be this being in the sky who's omnipotent, um, omnipresent, omniscient, you know, and we're constantly selling oh and, and we sell power short and when we're constantly selling these profound experiences short we limit our ability to experience them um, and to access them so I would invite all of us myself included I'm inviting myself on this journey um, to be willing to constantly um, redefine and explore what love is and and what it represents on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm.
1: That's so beautifully stated, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Um, so I'm aware that we're at time. I just wanna thank you again, and time in terms of our conversation. I just want to thank you again so much. This has really been a true pleasure and honor.
2: No, I wanted to thank you. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you for reading the book, for uh, sharing your thoughts and reactions. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California, We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fork. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.